I'm trying to lead our church to be serious about the Bible, very serious about the Bible, without being fundamentalist about the Bible. To be serious about the Bible without being characteristically fundamentalist about the Bible means many things. One thing it means is that we need to read the Bible for the serious work of literature that it is. Actually, it is a serious collection of literature, 66 books in the Protestant Bible, two testaments, written and edited over many generations in cultures far distant from ours, in languages very different from ours. To be serious about the Bible but not fundamentalist means not superimposing on the Bible the categories that some have felt or might still feel that they need uh, to impose a theology on the Bible, for example, a theology of inerrancy that says something about the Bible that the Bible doesn't say about itself. The Bible is authoritative for Christians. It is authoritative as tested under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is the sea that we swim in. It is the text that we privilege every Sunday by, by opening our hearts and listening to the Word and listening for God's Word. It is the centerpiece of our worship and proclamation. That is sufficient. In fact, we will spend our lives never being able to fully comprehend everything that the Bible would say to us. To be serious but not fundamentalist about the Bible means not pretending that the Bible dropped from the sky, but instead acknowledging that it was produced. It was a product of the people Israel and then the Christian people, written as a response to their experiences with God and aimed intentionally to help the people become more faithful to the God that they knew. Any theology of the inspiration of Scripture must be interwoven with an understanding of how it was written. To be serious but not fundamentalist means accepting that the Bible has multiple voices, sometimes multiple voices that compete with each other, and multiple layers of editorial reflection. And this is obvious to those who study it closely and to scholars of the Bible, and we don't need it's not there. To be serious about the Bible but not fundamentalist means recognizing that no biblical passages are uninterpreted. We read the text, we interpret the text, and that is always how it has been. In fact, there is a history of interpretation of biblical texts, and we stand you know, thousands of years into that history of interpretation. This means like when we hear or read a text like this one this morning, we are not the first people to read or hear that text. We are undoubtedly affected by what prior interpreters have made of that text. And sometimes what interpreters have made of the text has been better and sometimes worse for actual Christian faithfulness. Finally, to be serious but not fundamentalist about the Bible means reading biblical texts in terms of the actual genres in which they are written. Today, we know that a poem must be read differently than the newspaper. So we should read the Bible taking seriously what genre we are actually engaging with the text that we encounter. When you read any text apart from a genre, you're, we are always susceptible to, to mistakes. I think we are more likely to retain the, in, the intellectual credibility of our faith 
and to be able to pass it on to our smart children and grandchildren if we can take a serious but not fundamentalist approach to the Bible. And that's what I try to do in my preaching and teaching, and um, it's what I want to do in this series on Genesis 1 through 11. It is hard to think of a section of the Bible more susceptible to fundamentalist misreadings than Genesis 1 through 11. It has been read against its genre numerous times. It has been read as if it were a science textbook when it's not. It has been read to establish male superiority because, after all, Adam was made first, right? (laughs) It has been read to teach the moral inferiority of women because, after all, Eve sinned first, right? It has been read to teach racism. It has been read to teach that all of the created order exists for human beings to use and exploit as we feel like. All of these are terrible misinterpretations, but they have been common. And so, how do we get Genesis 1 through 11 right? I think if we, if we can, can try to get Genesis 1 through 11 right, we can, we can do almost anything because this is a hard section of Scripture. So we're going to spend most of the summer on it. We'll just keep on going, Genesis 1 through 11. So what do we know about the background of Genesis 1 through 11? Well, one thing to know is even though it's at the very beginning of the Bible, it appears to have been written rather late. Most scholars believe that it was written during and after the Jewish exile in Babylon, which was from 587 to 539 B.C. The function of Genesis 1-11 through was mainly to clarify a distinctive origin story for the Jewish people. This was in a context in which Remember what happened to the Jewish people. The Babylonians came into Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They conquered uh, Judah, the southern kingdom. They destroyed the kingship, and they carted off most of the leading people to exile in Babylon. In Babylon, in the context of the most powerful empire of the ancient world, now having lost their temple and having lost all of the anchor points of their identity, the Jewish people needed to regroup. They needed to reflect on who they were and where they came from and how their beliefs were distinctive from that of the other peoples around them, and notably the Babylonians. So what happens in Genesis 1-11 is a brilliantly narrated primeval prehistory, a, a, a back then, here's how it all started kind of story. In telling the story, the authors of Genesis both borrowed from their local, the local uh, creation stories that were in the air around them and also uh, edited and, and, and wrote their own material. The goal of Genesis 1-11 is to paint the grandest possible theological picture of where we all began, of how the world was created, of who created it, what the purpose was, what humanity is, Uh, what marriage and family life are about, why things go wrong, why there's evil. And also, we we neglect these often, but the birth of culture and agriculture and technology and cities, why there are people, people speaking different languages, and in general, what things were like in the world prior to the call of Abraham and the beginning of the Jewish story of the patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith. Genesis 1 through 11 
is a grand epic narrative that reminds us of other grand epic narratives. It's more poetry than prose. It's, it's best read more like how Star Wars opens. Remember that? A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's like that. It's much more like that than like a newspaper account or a history book. Genesis 1 through 11 offers a theological account of how it all began. It offers it for a specific purpose, to help the Jewish people understand who they were, to help them be faithful to Yahweh, their God. And so that was why it was written then, and we will read it asking how Genesis helps Christians be faithful to the God that in Jesus. We will be very serious about Genesis 1 through 11 without being fundamentalist about it. We will ask, how can it help us to be more faithful Christians? So that's the background. So the story begins in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. The first and among the most important theological claims of the Bible are in this first sentence, embedded implicit or explicit. And that is, there is one God, and this God is the creator of all things. This belief that we take for granted, perhaps, set the Jewish people apart from their neighbors in the ancient Near East. The peoples of Babylon and Syria and so on believed in multiple gods. They believed that different nations had their own different gods. They believed in pantheons of gods. And their creation myths tended to feature conflict between the gods, gods killing each other, eating each other, you know, whatever. These theologies of the pagan ancient world wired chaos and conflict into the very creation of the world. The gods conflicted, and that was how the world came to be. No wonder our world is as conflicted. That was the idea. This had the advantage of helping to explain to people why there is so much evil and chaos and suffering in the world. But it had the great disadvantage of creating a worldview in which there was no trustworthy single god at the center, just a multiplicity of competing gods. You just wanted to get on the right side of the most powerful god, if possible. That was what you would want to do. For Israel, on the other hand, there is one God. This God is the creator of all things. This God is the one who created everything that is near at hand and everything that is so far off we can barely see it or even imagine it. For Israel, there's not a different God for rain and then for sun. There's not a God for war and another for peace or a God of fertility and another one for death. There is one God, one God, responsible for all of creation. The one who created the world and sustains the world is the one that we serve. And this God is good. And this God makes good things. Fundamental affirmations of Genesis 1. This idea had the advantage of helping people think of the universe as under the sovereignty of one good God. But it did leave a problem that we've been wrestling with ever since, and that is, if there is only one God, and God is good, and God made a good world, why is there so much suffering? The answer to that is suggested in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, and we'll look at it in future weeks. But the primal message, the message of Genesis 1, is that God is not the author of evil. God is the maker of good. 
and we can trust this God. The, the fundamental refrain of Genesis 1 is God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. The picture of creation that is offered in the first creation story is that God made a good world. A good world. Creation begins as a dark, shapeless, mysterious, formless void. The Spirit of God hovers over the waters. It's fascinating. A lot of debates about what all that means. But then God begins to act. God acts by speaking. God says, let there be light. And there is light. After that, creation proceeds through a series of differentiations, teaching us that differentiation and diversity in creation are built in from the beginning, and they're good. The first differentiation is that light is separated from darkness. This has the nice effect of giving us what we call day and night. If all we had was day, or all we had was night, that would not work very well. We have both, and they come to us in orderly procession, night and day, day and night. In fact, in Jewish understanding, the, day, the, the official day begins with night. That's why the Sabbath starts at sunset on Friday and goes till Saturday sunset. In any case, night and day, the first differentiation. And then the waters that give us rain from up in the sky are differentiated from the waters in the earth, like the lakes and rivers and streams and springs. There's a dome or firmament, some of us were taught to call it, that separates the waters above from the waters below, and this dome is called sky. The waters of the earth then are differentiated from the land. So now there's earth and water, earth and sea or ocean, and both are good. And then the earth does some stuff. The earth becomes fruitful, giving us an abundant diversity of all kinds of plants and fruits and trees, and this also is good. And then in a charming way of talking about um, the sun and the moon and the stars, it says, basically, to light the day, God makes the sun. And to light the night, just enough, God makes the moon, and then there's also the stars. This also is good. And then God gets to work on the creatures of the sea and the air. It starts off with sea monsters. And then there's birds and, and fish of all types, all amazingly different types of water creatures. And these also are good. And then God turns to the land creatures, cattle and wild animals, foxes and wolves and, and little creeping things, centipedes and stuff. And that also is good. In all of their diversity, they also are good. All are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. All are blessed with the power to be fruitful and multiply. And they do, and have done so for a very long time. Finally, God makes humanity, Adam, a collective noun, humanity, human beings, us. And there's something unique is said about human beings. The text says that we are made in God's image, in God's likeness. Theologians have devoted so many pages of ink to figuring out what this means. I think what it mainly means is that we were created to resemble the God who made us in a unique way. All creatures matter to God, but human beings resemble God in a way that other creatures don't. 
And with this resemblance and with this status of being made in God's image comes a great responsibility. The part about human beings also then just quickly goes on to say that male and female are both made in God's image without any distinction. When, when Christians or Jews or others have taught that there's a hierarchy that goes God, male, female, that's heresy according to Genesis 1. Male and female both made in God's image without distinction. Male and female both of exalted status that have dominion, which means leadership or responsibility over the other creatures and the creation itself. We share with other creatures the command, the blessing to be fruitful and multiply, to be able to to reproduce and have more generation after generation. We celebrate that today. Then the text says that we have permission, God provides for us adequate food, Though in this creation story, the only food is fruits and vegetables. There's no killing in Genesis 1. There's no animals that get killed. So we're all fruititarians and vegetarians in Genesis 1. The image is, quite to the contrary of the ancient Near Eastern myths, is of a peaceful world. A world with no killing of anything by anybody. No killing and how human beings have yearned for some restoration or creation of a world like that. At the end of the sixth day, God sizes everything up. After making human beings, the narrator says, God saw that it was not just good, but very good. Very good. And then God takes a rest reflecting a distinctive Jewish emphasis on the Sabbath, God rests on the seventh day. The work is finished. God blesses the seventh day as a day of rest. And we see later in Scripture, it's a day of rest for everyone, people and animals and land. So what do we make of this? If we try to read it as a scientific account, we run into all kinds of problems. This is not a scientific account, it's a poem. It's a theology. It's a poem that offers a theology, and a beautiful one. What's the theology? The theology is, first of all, that there is one good God. And this God is the creator of the world, and we all come from God. This God is the designer of of a world, of many worlds, of a universe. This God dreamed up a world, and we are in it. This God is a God both of abundance and diversity, but also of order. We need order to live. We, we need the land to do what land does, and the water to do what water does, and we need light and darkness and day and night and clouds, and we need it all to work right, and God creates a world like that. This God is a God who makes beautiful things. The text delights in the beauty, at least implicitly, of the creation. We have a song that we sing in Fresh Start, You Make Beautiful Things. God makes beautiful things. The the theology of this text is that everything God makes is good. We'll find out later, we make some bad stuff, but God makes good stuff. 
our God must value abundance and diversity and fruitfulness because that's the kind of world God makes. And this God is extremely creative, perhaps blessing creativity for us as well. Human beings have a distinctive place in creation. There's a grandeur, not just for kings and princes and royalty, but for everyone. Everyone, in a sense, is royalty because we're made in the image of God. We have a place of honor and responsibility. We have a resemblance to God that must be respected. But to balance that distinctiveness, we also are reminded that we are creatures. Have you thought of yourself recently as a creature? You're a creature, and I am too. That means we were made by somebody. And we share creatureliness with other creatures. We come from God. We are God's handiwork like other earth creatures. We share creation with all these other creatures. All of us come from God. All of us are subordinate to the one God who made us. We are a creaturely family, you might say dogs and fish and birds and people all in there together. I think that's a lovely vision. And the text says we all need rest, at least one day out of seven. So are there implications here? You think about all the arguments over side points or trying to read this text to be something other than what it is. There is a theology and an ethic here. And I'd like to draw out maybe five points and then we'll, we'll wrap up. I think the quite clear teaching of this passage is Israel, church, believe in one good God. You know, believing in God is not always easy. Many of us have our ups and downs in our faith. All kinds of voices tell us about the absurdity of believing in God. This, te- this text says something about the absurdity of not believing in God. The absurdity of believing that this world comes from nowhere randomly. That all the design and order and beauty and majesty that we see is just kind of an accident. This passage says, believe in the one God, the creator of all. Believe then that the same God is the God of Abraham and Sarah, the God of Moses and Miriam, the God of David and Solomon, the God of Jesus the God who made the universe, the God who made you and me. The text basically says, worship God. Take a knee before God. Know who you are. You are a creature created by God. Worship that God. I think there's another implication that can be overlooked, and that would be simply look for the good in this world. Look for the good. God made a good world. It's messed up. We'll talk about that in two weeks. But God made a good world, and that goodness is always still visible in traces. Look for it. We don't live in a Genesis 1 world, but we do live in a world where you can see the handiwork of God everywhere you look, if you look. Look for the traces of the good. God said that it was good. Well, look for the good. Are you able to see the good in yourself? Are you able to affirm your own gifts, your own dignity, your own beauty? Look for the good in other people. 
Look for the good in other people. See them as people immeasurably valuable made in the image of God. Look for the good in creation itself. Everywhere you turn, you can see it if you'll look. And that leads to a good summertime point. Third point, enjoy and take care of God's creation. All of our songs today have been about the creation. Sun and moon and stars, light and darkness, animals and plants, colors and flowers, seasons and beaches and mountains, rain and wind and snow and sun and Atlanta heat. Enjoy them all, except for 100 degrees and 100% humidity. That's a, that's a stretch. But enjoy it. You know that there are some in this congregation who are lovers of God's creation in a way that can teach the rest of us. Love God's creation. Enjoy it. Notice it. Get out in it. And remember that as you get out in the creation and notice it and enjoy it, remember that we are not like disconnected above creation. It's not just the scenery of our lives. We are embedded in the creation. We are a part of it. It depends on us, but we also depend on it. We are part of a creaturely community, all interconnected, which is the basis of a concern for the environment, by the way. Not secular liberalism, but Christian stewardship. Fourth point, honor human dignity. Remember that every person is made in God's image. Every person bears a resemblance to God. Even if they have effaced that image through their own choices, they are still beloved of God. Treat them accordingly. We live in a society right now where people routinely feel authorized to degrade one another. On social media, in mainstream media, and in everyday interactions. Especially those who are different from us. Remember, everybody is made in the image of God. When we treat a human being with disrespect, we disrespect God. Don't disrespect God. Respect people. And that includes yourself. But it also includes people you might consider enemies and everyone in between. And then finally, rest. I took a vacation. It felt good. Some people have trouble taking vacations because they feel guilty or something. I think it's very clear that God set us up where we need rest. We need to not work 18 hours a day. We need weekly Sabbath. It may not be on Sunday, especially if you're in church work, but it needs to be someday. We need Sabbath also from our work responsibilities that for many of us now connect us by phone all the time. Turn off the phone. Tell people they can't reach you. Throw the phone in the ocean. Whatever you have to do. Human beings need rest. Does working 100 hours a week and being connected by phone the other, you know, 60 hours or whatever it is, 40 hours, is that really working for us? Creation becomes less good when we don't rest. We need to rest. And when one another needs to rest, like in church, we need to let people rest. 
Genesis has so much to teach us, so much to teach us about belief in God and seeing the good in this world, about the grandeur of this creation. Don't miss it today. When you leave, don't miss it. About the worth of human beings, about the need for rest. Next week, we'll learn about the way in which human beings were wired for relationship. It is not good to be alone. That's where we'll go next week. So come back and we will continue our journey in Genesis 1-11. through Word of God for us today. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's Sermon of the Week. Be sure to follow us online at fbcdecatur.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a blessed week.